Though the global pandemic may be slowing things down, Spring Branch is taking tangible steps forward to keep our economy strong, like supporting our local businesses, linking them to free online business courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Rebecca Schutz, housing reporter at the Houston Chronicle. And And I'm Marissa Lack, real estate reporter at Houston Chronicle. And today we're here with Jasper Scherer, a Houston Chronicle reporter based out of Austin who has been covering state politics, uh, which I'm sure has been really exhausting this summer. Uh, because the legislature was in session. So thank you for joining us. Of course. And we're here today to talk about property taxes. If there was like a marquee goal that state legislators put forth for this session, it was property tax relief. They had a bunch of extra money on hand. A big thing they wanted to do with it was give it to property owners in the form of property tax relief. But the details turned really contentious. They couldn't come to a deal during the regular session, and it took not one, but two special sessions to hammer something out. Now a deal is basically on the horizon. They're just finishing some nitty gritty. And we thought it would be an excellent time to have Jasper here to walk us through everything. Um, So I guess to start out with, could you take us back in time to before the regular session and just set the stage for why this was such an important goal? for state legislators and why this is how they wanted to use all that money. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the, I think the reason we're talking about all this is just political pressure. You know, a lot of Governor Abbott and a lot of other Republicans campaigned on providing these, these cuts after basically it was, it was revealed by the state comptroller that the, the state budget was going to have a bunch of um, leftover money at the end of the, the current budget cycle. So there's this big, $33 billion surplus coming up. And, you know, we're, we're in this a state where we, we don't pay income taxes. So, you know, the biggest thing that's on a lot of voters' minds, you know, we're thinking politics here, <laughs> is is their property tax bills. So heading into the year, they're, they're kind of all these different ideas about how to, how much money should be spent on, on providing t- these cuts um, and, you know, how to, how to distribute it, how much should be going to homeowners how much should be going to to businesses, to commercial properties. And so I guess the the kind of the abridged version as much as possible is that House Speaker Dade Phelan and then Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who's in charge of the Senate, um, kind of laid out these these competing plans in in March. And sort of the, the main sticking point was basically that Patrick wanted to raise the homestead exemption for school property taxes. So that's the amount that everyone who owns a home is able to, to shave off the the value, the taxable value that they pay for school property taxes. And then um, Thielen wanted to tighten the appraisal cap. So, you know, we're currently at, at 10%. Um, that's, you know, year to year, that's the limit on how much a homestead's value can go up. Thielen wanted to, to cut that in half and then also extend it to all types of property, 
including you know businesses, rentals. Patrick said that would distort the market. Thielen said that just raising the homestead exemption would be wiped out really quickly by rising appraisals anyway. So they're kind of at this impasse that goes into the into a special session. They they don't resolve it by the end of May. And then Governor Abbott calls them back for the special session and tells them to just take this completely new approach, um, put all the money towards buying down local tax rates, basically. This thing called compression that forces school districts to lower their their tax rates and then reimburses them for the lost revenue. Phelan got on board with that, but Patrick still insisted on sticking with the homestead exemption. And that's kind of how we got to this this compromise we're at now, that um, they sort of settled on on a, a mix of all of the above. But, you know, we can get into the details more. But that's, that's sort of the lead up, I'd say. Okay. So I feel like I'm hearing like three main tools. One is raising the exemption. Obviously, your tax bill is based off of how much your home is appraised as worth. So if they say, oh, school taxes, we're going to take like 100000 off the appraised value of your home, you'll pay less in school taxes. The second tool would be the cap, which is like really important in in a lot of neighborhoods right now because home values went up so quickly. And while your market value can go up quickly, they're saying, well, we're only going to raise your appraised value by maximum of of right now, it's 10% a year. So let's say your home one year was worth $300,000. And then home values went up during COVID. Now it's worth like 360,000 or something. But the appraised value can only go up 10%. So next year, it's going to be 330,000, even though the market value is higher. So that also means the the base amount that they're calculating the taxes off of is like sl- the increased is slowed. So they can slow down that increase even more, uh, which would be good for people who are in a property for a long time. And I guess the homestead exemption is good for homes, but it's not good for investment properties. It's not good for businesses. And uh, historically, that's because people are like, we should incentivize home ownership. We should make it easier for homeowners. And then uh, the third one is sort of giving the school districts money so that they'd have to charge a smaller percentage rate of your home's value. And that would impact everyone across the board who pays school school taxes, right? So uh, it would help homeowners, investors, businesses, everyone as well. So I guess there's like different mechanisms, but they also maybe benefit different people. Absolutely. And that's kind of what this debate all came down to is who's going to, you know, see the, the the biggest chunk of the relief. And, and basically what they settled on was most of the tax relief. It's it's an $18 billion package in total. About two thirds of it or a little more is going to be used to um, drive down the, the school tax rates. And that's, you know, that was a big source of contention during the special session because Governor Abbott was pushing to, to use all of the money um, for that, which you know, Dan Patrick and, and some other Republicans were arguing that at least some of the money should be used for raising the homestead exemption. So, you know, it, it really just came down to a debate over, you know, should we spread this more evenly or, as you said, across the board so that... So that businesses, including investors... Exactly. Or, yeah, folks who have, you know, second homes, um, you know, and, 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 you know, landlords. And we can also get into that too. Just there's a big debate over whether, you know, Democrats who don't really have any power to to get their own priorities into these plans, but they wanted to 
send some of the relief directly to renters, which ended up not making it into the final plan. But um, basically, so the homestead exemption made it in. They're going to raise it from $40,000 to $100,000, but also still the biggest uh, use of the money is for driving down the tax rates. I guess I have a few questions on that. So the the homestead exemption, what does it mean when, when you say it, it's going from forty to 100000 So if we take the amount of money Rebecca was, was using, $300,000 for, for a home, at the moment, you're able to basically trim $40,000 off the taxable value of that home for, for the purpose of paying your, your local school tax rates. Um, so that makes it a $260,000 home for the purpose of your tax bill. Now it's going to be a $200,000 home for the purpose of your bill. Um, and, you know, the estimates vary, you know, on exactly how much that's going to save you. It depends on basically your, your school districts, um, their, their tax rate. But essentially, if I'm remembering correctly, that's around half of the overall savings for, for the average homeowner. The more expensive your home, the more you're, you're going to save from, from the compression. So it really depends. Um, but you'd be looking at, Savings more in the you know say high one hundreds like seven hundred eight hundred dollars based on some of the estimates. How long does this last? It's a good question. <laughs> so you know it's it's kind of unclear how sustainable this is going to be. Um, I mentioned that you know this is being paid for with this big budget surplus, and as we go forward, because you know we might not have this this sort of once in a <laughs> generation surplus to draw from. Yeah. So it seems like at least two years and then the next session, they'll figure it out again. Exactly. Yeah. They'll have to figure out how to keep paying for, especially the compression to reimburse the schools. That's kind of the big, you know, it's going to continue to be more and more expensive the more, you know, money they approve for that. How how much are the school tax rates going down and, and how much does that take away from school funding, I guess? Right. It's so it's around I want to say 10, 10 or 11 cents per $100 of um of appraised value, of taxable value. So what's important to to note about that is the schools are essentially held harmless or they're they're they don't actually see any reduced um revenue. Whatever, you know, reduction they they take in from that lowered value, the lowered rate, I should say, the state is making up for that. With with the budget surplus partially or? Yeah. Right. But the actual amount of money going to schools is still the same. It's kind of just a, a, a matter of who's paying for it. Um, and so, you know, when the state's paying for it, essentially it's sales tax revenue that's that's paying for that. That's the biggest source of revenue for the state because they, they don't collect income tax and all the, the property taxes you pay go to local government. So it's a mix of sales taxes and a whole bunch of other kind of little taxes like on, on you know, motor vehicles and, and whatnot. But the surplus is, is a product of, you know, this big spike in sales tax revenue, mostly driven by inflation, and then taxes on, on oil and gas production. That also spiked a lot. So one way to look at this is, you know, when you're paying $4, uh, for a gallon of gas and, you know, all the, the other stuff you were paying more for because of inflation, the taxes on all that is a big part of, of what's paying for these property tax cuts. And could you explain the, this concept of a circuit breaker and 
how that applies. I mean, because when it, circuit breaker, the term itself, I think doesn't it comes from electricity, like stopping a current, stopping the flow of an electric current. But how does that term apply here? Yeah, so that's another um, part of the this tax cut package we haven't talked about. So there's this. There's going to be a twenty percent um, appraisal cap on non-homestead properties. So we talked about there's the 10% cap on, on homesteads. And, and this was included as sort of a, a way of appeasing Speaker Phelan, who had wanted some sort of appraisal cap. <laughs> so it's sort of a, a compromise to get part of what he wants. So it's a, a 20% cap on non-homesteads, which means businesses, residential properties that don't have homesteads, like second homes and rentals. Um, but only only on properties up to five million dollars in value. So the idea is kind of to target small businesses and um, you know I think landlords as well. Mm. Um, and but you know I think a lot of these properties, some of them are raising are you know seeing twenty percent year to year hikes in, in appraised value, but a lot of them aren't. As so it's it's that one's I think going to be the most interesting to see you know how that the effect of it actually shakes out. No one really knows. Well, it seems like it would have been most helpful actually during the pandemic real estate boom when when values were going up like double digits. You know, some landlords were saying they had like 40% increase, you know, just crazy increases in values. Um, I don't know though in this current market if we're going to be seeing that same double digit growth like annually in values but then as you said this is this is specifically for non-homestead properties so if you're living in your property and you have a homestead exemption that cap would not apply to you under this plan right that's right yeah you're still under but you already have a lower cap exactly you're yeah. still at you're still at 10% this is just for all the people who aren't under any sort of cap at the moment and you know, for from the perspective of, of renters, from the, the tenants themselves, there's a, a, a big debate about um, you know whether to to include any direct relief for them. And essentially, the the view from the you know GOP lawmakers who are pushing this plan is there isn't going to be any direct payments to to renters. There's there's nothing that says you the landlord received this you know this this benefit. You're paying fewer property taxes, therefore you have to pass on some percentage to your, to your tenants, you know, but the argument is that, uh, from Republican lawmakers is that essentially if you're driving down property taxes all over the place, landlords are going to have to pass on some sort of relief to renters just to stay competitive in the market. And so, you know, obviously that got tons of pushback from, from Democrats who say that, you know, and it's really hard to study, you know, whether that's actually happening because there's so many other factors at play, like the, you know, amount of property tax relief you get could be totally, you know, wiped out by like rising, um, rising prices, you know, through some, for some other reason. So, I mean, I think I read that the renters make up like a third of all households in Texas. So essentially, you know, a third of households will not really see any direct impact. Yeah. And renter households are obviously concentrated in cities. I think I was reading one of your stories. So someone that owned a $331,000 home could expect to save more than 2500 over the next two years. 
was that just from the school tax reduction or was that, you know, it was, does that savings encompass the entire? That's the whole package. So that's it's, and it's mostly, a, so it's a combination of the compressing the school tax rates and the homestead exemption. And it's, uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it's, it's kind of, it's not quite 50, 50, but it's, you know, close to that, you know, around half is coming from the compression and around half from the, the higher homestead exemption. And the interesting difference between the homestead exemption and the compression is since the homestead exemption is flat, basically people with lower valued homes would get a higher percentage shaved off, right? Of their tax bill. But with the compression, since it's a percentage, the people with more expensive homes save a greater absolute value because it's the same percentage, right? So it's interesting those two things are in play. Yeah. And that that was another, it was kind of an interesting dynamic to see during the, the special session when um, Governor Abbott and Speaker Phelan um, were trying to get this, this all compression bill. You know, they were pushing for that approach, whereas Patrick was trying to do still mostly compression, but adding the, the homestead exemption. And that sort of put, you know, Dan Patrick, who's this, you know, conservative right wing warrior who, you know, all the kind of grassroots Republicans loved him for years. But he's kind of in this case, he's on the same page as the um, progressives and the Democrats because they're they're in favor of a homestead exemption. Because, as you said, Rebecca, that's that relief is distributed much more evenly because it's everyone's getting as long as your home is worth one hundred thousand dollars, you're getting the same amount shaved off, you know. So it's it's much more evenly distributed. And I guess the evenest way would be to just send everyone a check for the same amount. <laughs> right. Which, uh, yeah, I, I know. I mean, some other states have, have done that. And I, I don't think that was even um, under consideration. I never heard anyone even float the idea. Yeah, I didn't hear anything. But you would hear more. I was wondering, has... Watching these three sessions and how this negotiation took place reveal anything to you about the workings of power that you found interesting? It was really fascinating to see Governor Abbott and the Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick really going at it publicly. There's been some tension sort of under the surface for for years. You know, Patrick was always rumored as a possible primary challenger to Abbott and just to see them really um, tussling openly over this, it caused months of gridlock and just you know basically ground the state government to a halt. Just funny to see the lengths that state leaders will go to to kind of save face and look like they're the ones driving the policies. And eventually, we just got to a part where everyone sort of seemed to win in the end. Everyone got a little slice of what they wanted. It's also interesting to be able to see, like from a policy aspect, how these three Republicans differ. This was actually an issue where it's like, okay, are we going to support low-income homeowners more, high-income homeowners more, or do we want to put some of it towards um, businesses? Do we want to put some of it specifically towards small businesses? I feel like it's a, almost unusual to see, be able to like look at people's stances and how they differ. Yeah, I was wondering, um, do you know, I guess zooming out from a historical standpoint, when's the last time that our property tax structure was reformed like this much or changed this much, do you know? Yeah. Actually part of this this eighteen billion dollar package is is going towards continuing to pay for compression that, that was approved in, in twenty nineteen. And as part of that um 
the deal that lawmakers struck back then, um, they tightened the, the caps on how much revenue, all, all sorts of local governments, but, you know, school, uh, school districts, cities and counties, um, they tightened how much revenue year over year, all sorts of local governments could take in. And this was part of what Dan Patrick was arguing during the, the regular session when, when the House and Speaker Phelan were pushing for appraisal caps. There's, you know, there's two parts of the equation, right? There's the, the appraised value of your property and then the rate set by the, the local taxing entity. And if, say, you're the school, the city, the county, they're all you know, capped in how much revenue they can collect year over year, then that forces them to lower their, their rates, essentially. So basically what, you know, what, what Patrick was arguing is even if your home is, you know, going up 50, you know, 50% year over year or some, you know, crazy number, you could still see your bill either go down or, you know, really just go up nowhere near that amount because the rate is going to be forced down from that 2019 change. To answer your question, that was one of the biggest recent changes. So the, the update is we expect the law to be, or this proposal to be signed into law by Governor Abbott soon. As an update, we recorded this a little while ago. Abbott has already signed this bill. Yeah, that's kind of the penultimate step. They also had part of the, the, this package also has to get approved by voters in November on the, the statewide ballot, which is, um, you know, when similar measures have, have uh, gone before voters, they've passed it overwhelmingly with 90 plus percent of, of the vote. So is, is that the constitutional amendment? That's right. One of the things that the Constitution needs to be amended for is to, to raise the homestead exemption. Actually, the, our current $40,000 exemption was um, raised last year from 25000 That was on the ballot, I believe, in Ju- June of 22. And that passed with like 90% of the vote. Quite the jump in the past two years then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I guess uh, quadrupling in value now. And I think um, my understanding is that this, it, it, if we assume that it, it, it will be passed in November, this would apply retroactively to to this current tax year. So it's going to, you know, when you get your bills, you know, early next year, it, the benefits would apply to that. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Well, I think uh, that you answered a lot of my questions. I feel like I have a better understanding. And I applaud you for following all of this nitty gritty stuff, because it's like, not only do you have to understand all the technical side of it, but the, you know, the political issues too around it. So thank you so much for giving us some of your your time and and uh, helping our listeners understand some of this. Of course. Yeah, I think we're all uh, we're all glad it's over up here in Austin. <laughs> kind of a relief. But I guess but I guess as uh, Rebecca alluded yeah. to earlier, it's possible we could be having some of these debates in two years. Yeah, it never yeah. really ends. It's more of a, a momentary break, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Well do something fun and relaxing. Um, And yeah, thanks for explaining this to us. Before we wrap up, Marissa and I have a few other updates related to this legislative session. Yeah, so earlier we had done a podcast about a bill that would have 
banned uh, investors from China, Iran, North Korea, and Russia from buying property in Texas. It was a pretty wide uh, sweeping measure that would have impacted permanent residents um, in addition to businesses. So we just wanted to provide an update on that that happened in, in uh, recent months. The bill first was rewritten a few times. First, it was rewritten to not include legal permanent residents. Then it was retooled even more to apply only to agricultural land, oil and gas land, timber and mining land. Um, so to try to kind of minimize the impact it might have on sort of regular people. But ultimately, the bill um, ended up dying in the regular session. It didn't make it out of a committee. Um, this was back in late May. So it effectively killed this um, this bill. So we just wanted to update that um, because it you know could have had a, a, a big impact on, on Houston's uh, Chinese population and uh, Asia town. So uh, that was the main update from Senate Bill 147. And Rebecca had wanted to talk about a few other um, pieces of legislation we had discussed a few months ago as well. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about uh, PFCs, public facility corporations. We had an episode recently about these tax break deals. And uh, this episode on, on the ledge, everything is a little wonky, but a PFC deal basically means like an apartment complex can agree to make a number of units affordable. And in return, the they could be exempt from paying 100% of their property taxes. And a 100% property tax break for a large apartment building could save you something in the neighborhood of a million dollars a year for the next 99 years. So uh, there was some debate. Some people were protesting when these things were being put in their neighborhood, either because they were worried about their infrastructure for types of people who live in affordable units or uh, because they were like uh, a municipal utility district and it was going to take like a big cut of their property revenue uh, and they had no say. And then there was another group that was worried about, well, actually, if you're giving them, you know, you're saving them effectively a million dollars a year, how much of that is going into affordability? You know, how much of this is a windfall for the developer and how much of this is like... a a really meaningful discount for renters. You know, it, it was uh, it was opaque. You couldn't tell. So they did pass a law on this. Well, link to a story where you can see all the changes. Basically, there, there are a few things that people were worried about. One was just like the length of the exemption. You know, you're going to exempt them for the next 99 years. None of us will be alive in 99 years. Shouldn't we be able to reconsider sooner? So they did reform that. If an existing apartment complex that decides to make some of their units affordable, the deal would last for 30 years. And then 30 years you could re reconsider if it's a brand new property. If they built, if they like pitch it and then they build it from scratch, it will last for 60 years. What else? Oh, we're talking about how you couldn't tell how much money is being put towards affordability. So there is going to be a yearly audit that will hopefully show that information. And if you're in an existing apartment complex, you're supposed to show like, these are our market rate, rate rents right now. And this is what they'll be after the deal. So it's supposed to show that like 60% of the money that you save goes towards renters. That's supposed to be in their proposal if it's existing. If it's a new build, they don't have to do that. They still have to do the audits, but they aren't going to be like, this is the market rates. And then this is how much we're saving. Another thing is before... You know, I said like a number of units would have to be made affordable. There's always 
arguments about what affordability means and affordable to whom. So before uh, it was saying like 50% of the units would have to be affordable to people making like 80% of your region's median income. So like a lot of these units are one bedrooms, which are supposed to be for two people households. In the Houston area, that would be like $60,000 for a family of two. So they're saying that units would have to be affordable for people of that income. Uh, So the new law is like only 40% have to be affordable for people making 80% and 10% have to be affordable to people earning 60% of the area median income. Basically, the new law has higher affordability standards. There's debate about whether it goes far enough. It'll have more transparency, which is one of the things that like people couldn't tell whether it's succeeding or not because of transparency. We'll be interested to see how this new legislation impacts things coming up. Thanks, listeners, for tuning in. We know this was a little wonky, but um, I'm sure a lot of people have questions about um, the property taxes. And of course, everyone's always interested in affordability. Uh, so we appreciate you hanging on with us. And if you ever have a question or a story idea, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at Marissa Lex 7 And I'm at R-A Schutz. That's R-A-S-C-H-U-E-T-Z. You can also reach out to Jasper at Jasp Sharer, J-A-S-P-S-C-H-E-R-E-R. And uh, if you like this episode, please share it with a friend. It helps get our real estate reporting out to more folks. Thank you to our print editors, Brian Rausch and Carol Motzinger. Thanks to um, Carol Gibbs and all the kimonos and his band for the theme music. Thank you to Pirate Studios and Scott Kingsley for the editing. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Till next time. Till next time.